Hey everyone, it's Iwa. Before I begin today's episode, I just want to say that I hope you're all staying home, safe, and healthy. COVID brought on unexpected challenges to all of us, but I think there's something to be said about how humans are able to adapt and grow from these experiences. It's the Chinte Network podcast, where we explore the different stories and voices of our community. And today, you'll hear from the insightful and intelligent Macristo Kind. Macristo has over 10 years of experience working in international organizations like the UN, and she's joining us to talk about her path to independence, Myanmar's healthcare system, and how to stay positive during these times. Uh, well, I graduated in 2006 from ISY, and since then I've been working in healthcare.、Um, I have over eight or nine years of experience working in international organizations across、uh, the U.S., Switzerland, and Myanmar. Very passionate about giving back to community and society, and also Myanmar,、um, Myanmar's growth and development. But currently, I'm based in Singapore. I just finished my second master's in public administration, and I'm very excited to see what the next steps would be. And when it comes to that unique perspective of working in Myanmar and working abroad, can you tell us what the biggest difference is? Yeah, I think、um, it's a very good question, and I think a lot of Chintes would have experienced this at one point in their in their previous lives, right? Well, there are many differences. Some very explicit, and some very subtle. Explicit differences would be just the different work culture. For instance, I'll give you an example.、Uh, I worked at a hospital in、uh, in Boston at Dana Farber Cancer Institute. It's one of the top leading cancer hospitals in the U.S. It's also affiliated with the Harvard Medical School, so it's very well renowned. And I、uh, was part of this、uh, department looking at、um, different types of genitourinary cancers. And I had a run-in in my first week when I was coming from. You know the Myanmar mindset, where you call the doctors doctor, you know this and that. You give them the utmost respect, and you're expected to call them, you know, revere them, and really sort of put them up on a pedestal. And that's just how it works. But in Boston, I met the head of the department, and he said, "Oh no, no, no! Please do not call me doctor so and so. Please just address me by my first name." And that in itself was a huge difference. Is the culture, the working culture in the healthcare system in Myanmar versus the U.S. And I learned that in the first week of work.、Um, so the work culture is very different. And yes, there's of course respect that we give to healthcare providers like doctors, nurses, and midwives, but it's done in a very different way. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, but those adjustments need to be made, especially at the workplace. Um, more subtle things, I would say, is really about how we spend our time、uh, with our colleagues, chit-chatting in between working. For instance, I was the only international worker. International worker, as in, I was the only one on an H-1B work visa. Oh. The, the rest were all Americans, and so you know, just the topics we spoke about at the water cooler or while we're going to grab coffee was quite different. Um, of course, you you know we all had American friends and other friends from different backgrounds in school, but at work it's very different. You still have make small talk, but we're at very different points in their lives. We're now talking about let's say buying homes, you know where the best rentals are, or what we're gonna do this weekend. And it's not about partying or it's not about going to a bar, but it's about checking out a new museum down the road. 
Um, so it was a very different sort of world uh, that I experienced, but it was, it really pushed me professionally and personally. I would say that working abroad has really defined me as a person. It really helped me see how I worked individually, but also as a team, uh, but also as an organization. And so I would say it's quite different because the working culture, like I said, is very different. It's not like any organization that I've ever worked for in Myanmar, for example. Okay, so from what you are saying about that difference, I think it's actually a transformative uh, experience for you. And it is something that you would recommend to those uh, students flying to the States or flying abroad to actually consider working uh, in those mm -hmm. in those other countries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What kind of mm -hmm. advice would Definitely. you give them? What kind of advice would you give these, these yeah. kids? Yeah. So I would say I mean, if you're going to the U.S. or Europe or even, you know, Asia uh, or studying abroad anywhere other than your home country, even if you're going for a bachelor and undergrad degree, I really would recommend working part time from the first year. Uh, some people say that's crazy. Why would you do that? Some Asian parents will say you should focus on your studies. But I would actually argue that it actually is very beneficial in two ways. One is that you actually really learn the value of money. And it's very different from when you are going off to school. This is really the first time that you are proving to yourself as an adult, as a young adult. And making your own money, even if it's the minimum wage, working at the school canteen or working at the school library, really helps you define your identity, I think. And it helps you in the long run by making you more confident in your own skills and knowledge, even if that means serving pizzas, which is what I did. Um, and the second thing, <laughs> the second thing I think it really helps with is with time management. So growing up in high school, we have very set schedules. Go to school at, you know, 7.30, come back at 3, maybe do some extracurricular. Um, but once you go up to college, you have a lot of free time. And I don't, don't think that is something that they tell you ahead of time. And you have to kind of learn along the way. Well, it's not so much um, that you have free time, right? It's it's just yeah. that there's now no one flexibility setting your schedule. There's no exactly exactly. There's no system in place to make sure you have something that you're doing, that you're productive for like a majority of the day, right? Now you are mm -hmm. responsible, and that's something that I think a lot of students are won't be used to. I wasn't used to that. exactly. Exactly. And neither was I. And I think most of us struggled in the first year, if not the first two years, to try to manage that. You're absolutely right. I think it's not that we have more free time. We just have more flexibility of our time. And we don't have someone breathing down our neck, aka our moms or our tutors, <laughs> saying do this and do that, right? Uh, so once you have flexibility, you know, you need to figure out how to be productive, like you said. And in my opinion, working part-time actually helps you manage your time better because you say, all right, I'm working three days a week from this time to this time, which means that I need to get my work done before then, mm -hmm. uh, or I need to get things done after I work, you know? So having that schedule, that fixed time slots in your schedule really helps. I would recommend working even during school and obviously to pick up internships in the summer, preferably in the US while you have your student visa. And after you graduate, I mean, I graduated in 2010 from my bachelor's degree at Brandeis. I'm sure immigration issues, visas might not have changed drastically, but I don't know, knowing Trump, 
but I think there's still a one-year OPT, right? Which is basically allows you to work full-time in the U.S. after you graduate. And it's even longer if you major in STEM. So I would recommend to take advantage of that. Um, even if you get into thinking of a master's or a PhD program, I would actually recommend that people work at least for a year or two in between going to your next education journey because it really helps. You can really tell the people that worked and people who did not work <laughs> when you are doing higher education. So definitely I would recommend that would be some of my tips, but obviously everyone has their own individual journey and their own individual experience. This is just my experience and what I think maybe could be helpful for some people. When it comes to finding a, a job while you're in university, is it easy to get a job that is not in the service industry? Or is it that most students will only be able to get this kind of part-time, like these are the only jobs available for the students who are in college, I'm assuming? Uh, not necessarily, but I would say that getting these part-time jobs at the school is easier, especially as an international student, because you're not legally allowed to work outside. You can work on campus. For example, I was on a financial aid package. My parents barely spent any money on my university education. Is because I got a financial aid package where it was a mixture of a scholarship that covered my tuition fees, but also a small loan, which is basically just to help me think about how debt works and what was it called again sorry something about like working on campus it's like mm. work on campus right right yeah so as a foreign student you are bound to work on campus because you're not technically allowed to work off campus at least during the school year and even when you work on campus they have these stipulations where you cannot work over let's say 16 hours or 20 hours a week i forget the details now but i would recommend getting those part-time jobs on campus as well mainly just because you're not commuting back and forth. And as a student, you know, when you're in a new city or a new town, it's really helpful to be on campus and have that presence. So yes, technically you're only allowed to work on campus, but there are a variety of different types of jobs on campus, right? So if you see the movies, you might think, oh, I'm going to work in a canteen or the library, which is what I mentioned before. But there are also other types of part-time jobs you could get. So for instance, one part-time job I absolutely loved was um, there was a student in my class that had a visual impairment. So all I had to do after every class was make a photocopy of my notes and send it to him. <laughs> and that's how I got paid. Oh. So I literally got paid for taking notes in class that I was already taking. Um, and just sending those copies over to the students. So there's a variety of things, but I would say take advantage of your school resources. I think we come from a culture where everything's been given to us, right, in Asia. Uh, our parents, our families, and basically our entire uh, high school, ISY is great at that. But things are given to us. They tell us, oh, you might not need this, but we're going to give it to you in case you need it. Whereas once you go off on your own, it's more about what do I need and what type of resources are out there and you have to actively go out and seek them. They are there, but you have to do some research on your own. You have to be proactive. You have to go there yourself, but I guess in COVID times it'd be online. But to say, you know, hey, uh, I want to get some part-time job and can you guys help me? Like, is there anything that you have available? And most likely not, you will have people who are very helpful. You just have to ask. And I think that sounds very simple now that we're talking about it, but people forget once you, know, once you get thrown into the midst of school. 
it's usually simple to say, but very hard to do. Exactly. When it comes to coming back into Myanmar and working in Myanmar, what kind of difficulties did you face in reintegrating back into society, your home? I think uh, it's at different levels, right? I would say it was quite a challenge. But what I had done was, as part of my uh, Master of Public Health program when I was at Columbia, I actually did a global health focus. So that allowed me to work abroad for six months, and I chose to use those six months to come back to Myanmar, basically almost as a test run to see if I could reintegrate. <laughs> right? Because at that point, I had spent eight years abroad, and I was like, "Wow, how am I going to live in my family home again?" And turns out that it went really well, so I decided to move back. And of course, lo and behold, spending six months and then moving back entirely is a very different <laughs> ball game. Um, so, <laughs> personal level, obviously, moved back in with my parents. First week was amazing. Second week starts with, um, and you know, I love my parents dearly. They're amazing, and they're actually one of the most liberal people I know. It got to the point where I started to feel like my independence was being taken away, and it's not just because of my parents. It was more like society. Uh, everywhere you go, you bump into at least someone you know, or you go out to a bar and then someone sees you and they text your parents saying, "Hey, I saw your your daughter." Uh, so that was a bit of a challenge, especially as a young woman. I think it's a very different experience as opposed to what my brothers went through. Professionally, it was also the fact that I that people had to take me seriously, even though I was 24 and I was a young woman coming back. What was difficult for me professionally was getting the recognition and getting the trust from people in my organization. The hierarchy is very true. We are a very ageist and sexist society. I'm just going to put it out there. Whoever can argue with me can argue with me later. Uh, <laughs> so if you are an elderly man, you can say whatever you want, and people will listen to you. If you are a 24-year-old woman, girl, as they would call it, they would ask you to do photocopies and get coffee, even though you have a master's from an Ivy League. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you one example. I did some research on the urban poor and their lack of access to uh, health services. And um, my boss at the time, he's a Swiss guy, very supportive, very like, I want to like help you, like you know. We had a meeting with a senior official in Naypyidaw and the Minister of Health. We walked into the meeting, and uh, of course, the ministry—I'm not going to say who it is—this uh, senior official shook hands with my boss, who was a elderly Swiss man, and completely ignored me. Even though I was in the meeting room, of course the meeting starts. We're like exchanging, "Hello, how are you?" Everything, and my boss goes, "Oh, and by the way, this is Wei Yikang, and she'll be, you know, telling us a little bit about the research she's done on the urban poor." You should have seen the look on this guy's face. <laughs> uh, he was shook. Um, his eyes widened, you know, and I was like, "This is my moment. I need to prove myself." Um, anyways. <laughs> The meeting went well, um, and at the end, you know, I think he was very receptive towards the end of the meeting, and we exchanged, you know, cards and we kept in contact after that. So I'm not saying that it's not because they are deliberately trying to undermine young people or women. I think it's just that historically we have been a very male-dominant society, but it hasn't always been that way. It has been in back in the day. If you ask my grandparents' generation, women were very dominant, and they were they played a huge role in their families and also in society. 
So I think we just need to relearn a lot of that culture that we have lost or we have forgotten for a bit. So reintegration was quite difficult. <laughs> um, I had to give it, you know, my friend Andrea. Um, I'm sure you know Andrea, uh, Calvin and Justin's older oh, sister. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Of course. Yeah. She said, Crystal, give it a year. You have to at least give it a year. And then, yeah, I gave it a year. Took me actually more than a year, <laughs> maybe two, three years, you know, it finally happened. So I'm very glad that I finally moved back home. But again, that being said, now I'm back out in Singapore. So <laughs> the thing is, you've kind of glossed over how exactly that year helped. And so was it that you adjusted to the society or did you find a pocket of independence and freedom or a unique uh, way of being true to yourself while living mm -hmm. in the society? But which is it? Mm -hmm. I think it's both. Yeah. I think I had to adjust myself a little bit because, you know, it's about choosing your battles. I am not a believer in the whole system sucks, so I'm not going to be a part of it and I'm going to be a rebel about it. Sure, if you want to do that, I respect that. You can do that. Personally, I recognize this is the system and I cannot change it by myself in a year. <laughs> So what I had to do in the first few years was more of a personal journey, more of an inwards, why am I the way I am? And it's not about placing blame on myself, but reconciling the differences. Another example is, of course, my identity as a woman. So there's a lot of gender issues that I think you might be interested in because it is a very, very pervasive thing. Um, I have, even I have a mom and I have a sister. So yes. I am interested in this. Yes. You know my mom, she's the most lovely woman in the world and she's so loving and so caring, but she is also a product of how society had raised her. And so it's no one's fault in recognizing that. I have to say, I cannot be mad at her. Instead, what I should be saying is, all right, let's take a step back and why is she the way she is? And once I did that, the conversation between us worked even better. So it's more about, all right, I see where you're coming from, mom, but this is where I'm coming from. Having that conversation is critical. And I'm not saying I me, mean, Minted and Alex knows this, like I lose my cool, of course, you know, no one's like perfect all the time. But, you know, having that conversation is, is really critical. You know, going what you were saying before about a reverse culture shock. It's about redefining your identity, right? We were raised a certain way. We were thought to believe in a certain way. Every individual has their own mental model of how they perceive the world. Right. So no two person is going to see the same event in the same way because they were brought, brought up differently. And then leaving home, you had to also redefine yourself. Who am I in the US? I am a Burmese. I am a student. I am working. In a way, that's a little bit easier than coming back. Because coming back, then you have to say, who am I again? <laughs> and this time, you don't have an excuse. You don't have an excuse to say, oh, I'm not from your society. In the US, you can say, oh, sorry, I don't understand that because I'm not American, mm. right? right? But you come back and you cannot say, I don't know this because I'm not Burmese because you are Burmese, right? right? right. You're, oh, you're I guess judged. in your case. Yes, yes, yes. You yeah. judge for not being, well, in their terms, normal, right? Or what society correct. deems normal, yeah. Correct, correct. And you don't get a pass. You don't get a pass saying, oh, uh, we do this uh, at work sometimes. Oh, he's a foreigner. He just doesn't understand. He didn't mean it that way. Let's give him a benefit of the doubt. Right. But if you are a Burmese who, were, who was educated about and come back, you're even scrutinized at a higher level than they would for other people. It's to be cognizant of this dynamic 
is really important. And that really is a culture shock is who am I really and how do people perceive me and how do I reconcile the differences? And it takes a lot of inner work. This is sounding like a spiritual podcast, but <laughs> you know, it's really, it takes a lot of inner work and a lot of self-reflection and a lot of thinking about yourself and people don't do that enough. I cannot stress this enough is people do not do this. And you grow up and you're like 45 or 50 and you go, wow, why did I make these life choices? And I think it's, you know, we need to start early. I mean, if it was up to me, I would integrate that into the school curriculum. Um, it's really about mental awareness and self-awareness. As I said before, gender, huge issue. And it's, it's an issue I continue to be quite passionate about. You'll see me arguing with my mom from time to time. Um, <laughs> so I think that the reverse culture shock that you felt and that you internalized and worked through and found a way to handle it and deal with the conflict in values and the conflict in ideology. It's so prescient and it's also so good for those who you interact with because mm -hmm. I think you are also a reverse culture shock for them because you provide right. this different modern perspective that I think is sorely lacking in their societal bubble because they right, are talking right. to the same people, they're interacting with the same things and thinking the same way for years, decades. And it's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's always good to be exposed to something new. Mm -hmm. Like you say, the fact that you are Myanmar means that they have no excuse. The fact that right. you, right? Like it's again, a two-way street. Because you are Myanmar and because you are who you are, that means that there can be more like you. There can be others like you. That younger generation right. can be a little bit more accepting and more equitable when it comes yeah. to gender when it comes to the hierarchy system and mm -hmm. when it comes to developing discipline and a sense of independence it sounds like the core value that you prioritize highly is independence i actually want to get into that your your values and i'd like mm -hmm. i'd like to know what what are your core values Definitely, I think you're right. I've, <laughs> I've always uh, valued independence. Um, I, I value family and I value society just as any Burmese would. It's a very important part of my life, but yes, I think individual independence has always been high on the sort of my personal values. Uh, what I would also say is to be committed, to follow through. That's another value that I've been working on. And all these values are not things that I'm necessarily good at. It's just those things that I've identified as important to me. So I'm trying to work towards them. Um, so to be very committed and to follow through with what I say, that's another thing is integrity. You know, And these are values that schools try to teach you, but not necessarily. Um, <laughs> and it, it's something you have to kind of learn on your own. And I think part of that is to be very honest with yourself. What am I good at? What am I not good at? And be very transparent with yourself. And it really comes from a place of honesty. Another thing I would say is to be bold, especially as a young Burmese woman. I was on my own at Brandeis and I was the only Burmese in, in the entire school and I was 18. So you had to be bold in order to get ahead. Of course, self-doubt is always there about, oh, am I not good enough? Am I not smart enough? It's always there and it will continue to be there even though you're 40, 50 and you're successful. Um, but it's really to be saying, okay, well, what's the worst that could happen? Let me just go for it. I think being bold has definitely shaped the way that I've made decisions in my life. Another thing is really what encompasses all of my values is about making a social impact. 
And that has always been my drive, trying to build a better community and society, especially back home, right? Home country is really my ultimate goal. But I also recognize that there are many ways to do that, which is also why I think working um, in other countries is also very useful. So yeah, those are some of the values that are very close and dear and near to my heart. <laughs> I, I actually want to dive a little bit into this desire to help your society versus the independence value. Because when it comes to how we can help society become independent, right, so that it doesn't need help, how do those two values come together? Because you value mm -hmm. independence, I'm sure that's also what you strive for society to become. In that sense, mm -hmm. for example, instead of mm -hmm. uh, giving fish to yeah. someone who doesn't know how to fish, you teach him how to fish, right? Like that's right. the kind of allegory that I'm thinking about. So right. Is, right. How do you reconcile those two values? Because right. I, can, I can see a lot of people who want to help society, they tend to go the route of giving things, like how ISY mm -hmm, does things, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm, I just want to mm -hmm. know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're touching upon is a very big issue. In fact, it is, it has been a very hot debate in development, which is what I was doing before. So let me just say this. I used to say people, I used to work at the UN and, you know, we work with healthcare in, in Myanmar is, if we're going to do our job right, we are going to work ourselves out of our jobs eventually. Hmm. Um, basically to say, it's not about just handing out free medical care. It's not just about handing out free goods, which is what you were saying, right? It's wonderful. I love the Myanmar society and our culture of donating. It's great. But as a public policy maker or as a uh, UN agency or any organization, really, if you are involved in development, my personal take has always been, and there's, there's two sides to everything and there are different schools of thought on this, right? But what I've seen is that what works best, especially in the Asian context, is you create an enabling environment. Obviously, you instill in people that they have to work hard. They have to look after themselves. They have to look after their families, right? You do not spend your monthly income away on gambling and drinking, right? You have to take care of yourself. But what governments and what policymakers and what these development agencies for example could do is to create an enabling environment to do that i am a big believer in social justice is because systematically there are people who are left out excluded and marginalized and without some sort of an intervention you do end up with a larger gap between the rich and the poor the sick and the healthy, the elderly and the young. And especially when it comes to public goods like education or healthcare or even transportation, you need to have some sort of a level playing field. That being said, I'm all about promoting economic growth and development. Yes, you know, go for it. People should make money. That's, that's how the economy and capitalism works. But at the same time, we cannot forget that we need to uplift people out of poverty, right? So this is the long game. Of course, the more people there are, the more middle class you have, the more people you'll have buying products. <laughs> so it's actually better for your business in the long run. So yes, I, I believe in helping society so that they can help themselves. 
it is just recognizing that there are the systematic discrimination for people who are not educated, for people who do not come from a privileged background. And it's really about creating those systems and policies so that people can take use of their own individual resources. A really good example here, I guess, in Singapore is the education system, right? The classic tale is you come to Singapore, you get on a taxi cab and the taxi driver is talking about his daughter who's in the fourth year of their medical school, paid for by the government, right? Obviously, people say, oh, like, that's such a great system. But the way it's set up is they had to work their way towards it. But the system is set up so that you at least have the opportunity to do that. And I think that that is essentially what I believe those two values, um, how they interplay with each other. The state has to work in a way for people to be independent and to work on their own, but do so in a way that's fair and equitable, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. The question I actually, uh, off of that topic, how you reconcile those two values, I want to know what is the perspective right now for mm -hmm. for a lot of these, well, let's just talk from your experience, yeah? From mm -hmm. the experience of interacting with governments and healthcare mm -hmm. systems, what is their perspective and how has that perspective changed? Uh, sorry, their perspective on... On the healthcare development. Right, right. Okay, sure. I mean, I think that is a great question, especially now Myanmar is going through its second wave of COVID, which is very uh, worrying. Okay, so let's take a step back, I guess, and see. Um, with the UN, I travel to almost all states and regions in Myanmar and work with the various health agencies such as their state and regional health departments, but also local uh, grassroots um, NGOs and CSOs. I think what we've seen is that there really has been decades of underinvestment, very little resources being allocated to health, but also education. So both health and education combined. So what I saw was a stark contrast between what my grandparents, uh, oh, so sorry, my grandparents, my mom's uh, mom and dad are doctors. They're civil servant doctors. The one's a surgeon and the other one is an anesthesiology. They moved all around the country. They worked in different states and regions. And the way they described their work growing up, right? We hear a lot of stories from them about how they worked in these different uh, states and regions and in their healthcare system was very different from what I saw in reality 20, 30 years later. And I think we've seen a rapid decline in resources being allocated. So we saw ultimately an impact on the healthcare system. But in the last uh, four or five years, the government really has been focusing on improving health and education and that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done but healthcare at the end, delivering healthcare is a public good and essentially becomes a decision at the highest level of the government. So not to get political, but it does require a lot of uh, political will and commitment. Oh, I see. I see. Healthcare is such a huge topic. It really is diverse. So when it comes to the specific developmental priorities for Myanmar, mm -hmm. what should those be? Right. Is it medicine that Myanmar desperately needs to improve upon or is it surgical technology or what is it? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. What exactly in healthcare is it that Myanmar is lacking? I mean, we can spend a week talking about this, but if I was to, you know, very briefly say what we need to focus on, um, I think we really need to focus on our underlying systems and processes. And the reason why I say that is this. 
So when we had decades of underinvestment, right, things get stripped away from the system and processes get stripped away. So we were left with sort of the skeleton, the bare bones of it. A lot of resources then went into hospitals, especially in urban areas. So what I would say is we should, yes, of course, invest in hospitals and tertiary care and specialty care, but we also must not forget primary health care, which is really the first line of defense in our healthcare system. And it's even more important in areas, in rural areas and even uh, semi-urban areas where, you know, as according to our census, 70% of our population lives. And this is usually their rural health center or their sub-rural health center are usually the first point of care that they have access to. So it's really to invest in both, of course, in urban areas, but also not to forget the rural areas. We really need to make sure our whole health system is functioning. So let me give you a very concrete example because it's getting quite abstract, right? So <laughs> oftentimes, yeah, oftentimes people say, okay, health healthcare means medicine. I go to a doctor, I'm sick, I go to the doctor, the doctor gives me medicine, I feel better, right? right? So let me take you behind the scenes because that's really what I'm passionate about and that's health system strengthening. So for you, when you're sick and you want to go to a doctor, you got to make sure there's actually a health facility nearby you that you can go to, correct? Correct. So imagine you're in the middle of nowhere, not Yangon, okay, in the middle of, let's say, McGuigan. So you need a health infrastructure. You need an actual health facility, maybe within walking distance because you are a, an average Myanmar person living in Nguye. So let's say 20 minutes. So the facility needs to be there. So the government needs to make sure, or the private sector needs to make sure that there's actually a health facility. So you go to this clinic and uh, what do you need there? You need to make sure you have the right health personnel. You need trained doctors and nurses and midwives there. And let's say you go in and see the doctor and the doctor says, okay, I'm gonna do some tests. So what does he need? He need equipment. So you have to make sure that the building is not just a building, it has actual equipment in it that can run tests. So you need these medicines and equipment to do that. And then, of course, the doctor said, all right, I think you might have TB, so I'm going to prescribe you some medication. In order to do that, the doctor needs those medication at hand at that point of care. Then you go back and you take care of yourself, right? So what I'm trying to say is that in order for you to get the health services you need at the time you need it, a lot of things need to be happening in the background to make sure that it happens. It's almost like putting on a theater, right? You have your actors on stage, which are the doctors and the nurses and midwives, but you need the stage managers in the back making sure that the curtain goes down and up when it's supposed to. You need to make sure that the lighting guy is actually highlighting the right actor, right? So that's how the health system works. It's There's so many subsystems and it's very, very complex. And it all needs to be working together for a bigger whole for it to work. And that is something that I think Myanmar really needs to invest in. Of course, you know, we're a very doctor-centric, medical-centric society. Interestingly, so is almost every society. But in many other countries, they actually had a natural progression towards public health. And what we're seeing now in Myanmar is that progression happening, but at the time of COVID. So that's really the type of thinking we need to have. Now, it might not make sense to, uh, to most people who are now working in healthcare, but that is essentially what I would say, is to invest in health systems and processes and the, and the people. 
Uh, so it's not about buying the next medical technology. That's you know what you were saying, or uh, buying the best medicines or the best technology, but having systems and processes in place so that you could buy these medicines and technology if you needed to. But you need those processes in place. Right. See what I mean? Yeah. yeah I do see what you mean. Getting back to COVID.、Uh, COVID,、yeah. we all know, is is hitting the whole entire world right now. It would be good to hear from you. How much strain do you think this wave is going to impact the healthcare system in Myanmar? Right.、Um, I mean, I have not been in Myanmar. Just for you know, disclaimer, I have not been back in Myanmar for about a year now. So, what a lot of what I will say will be based on my experience in the past, but also what I hear from my colleagues on the ground. So, this is my personal opinion. I would say that our health system is very fragile, but thankfully, we have a lot of amazing people in the Ministry of Health and Sports, but also in local organizations like NGOs and CSOs who are capable and who are willing and very, very committed. And I think that's really the crux of our response to COVID. That being said, we are starting to see many health workers in the front line being overstretched. Not just in the front line, but also in the management level, overstretched because they've been dealing with this day and night since January. They've been preparing for these scenarios since January and working day and night ever since we had our first case in March. And so, what we need is this long-term planning, right? COVID is not going to be over in three months or six months. It's going to be with us for another year or two. And so, I think people need to be thinking about. How do we stretch out our resources for the long run? And I think that is going to be our biggest challenge. We have very capable people, like I said. And as of today, I just saw the news that Nepido is sending three senior people, officials from the Ministry of Health and Sports, to the Yangon region in order to help fight COVID because of the surge in cases. So the challenge is going to be at the end, human resources. We have amazing people who are committed, but there are only so many of them. So how do we ensure that these people are not burned out, that they're still able to、uh, function at their optimal level while preparing for the long term? Because as I said, it's not going to be over in a couple of months. We have to play the long game, and that preparedness is really going to be our biggest challenge. I see. I see. Is there a, an avenue for intergovernmental healthcare? Is that possible? Do you think where we have、mm. uh, a cooperation?、Mm. Because when it comes to trade, it seems like everyone wants to form a trade blocks, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, they want、mm-hmm. to, they want to ease the flow of information and human resources. So would、mm-hmm. that would that work for healthcare? I think if anything, COVID is showing that we need intergovernmental and global and regional、um, collaboration.、Mm. Um, I mean, this is a stark example of why we definitely need this. I mean, health becomes a security issue. What we're finding is it transcends boundaries. The virus is not isolated to. They don't know. Oh, we're now going from Myanmar territory to Thailand territory, right? They don't understand borders. It it doesn't matter. So I think it's even more important that we invest in these international collaboration in international agencies such as the World Health Organization. Um, I know there are a variety of opinions out there, but Trump's recent, you know, take to reduce funding to WHO is a huge mistake, in my opinion. <laughs> so there's definitely a a place for it, if not a call for more increased regional and global collaboration. 
ASEAN is one avenue, and there's been regular meetings between amongst the different uh, ASEAN government agencies to foster collaboration. So, for instance, to Myanmar, when we were actually first starting off in February, March, we had a lot of test kits that were donated, COVID test kits that were donated from various countries around the region, including Singapore and China, for instance, and other countries as well. And of course, another thing that's really needed for、um, collaboration is information, like you said. Yes, in trade you are trading goods, but now these are people. So these governments need to be sharing information with each other, regardless it's travel through air, travel through bus, or even just walking across borders. There needs to be an integration of some sort of information. But then it becomes an issue of not just health; it's now border affairs and immigration and and all of that. So another thing, what I would say is not just intergovernmental, but also interdepartmental collaboration is needed within each country.、Uh, COVID has shown that it's not just a health response; health needs to be embedded in almost every function of the government. And to effectively respond, it's not just the responsibility of the Ministry of Health; it's the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it's the Ministry of Immigration, it's the GAD. All of these ministries and departments need to be working closely together, and、um, I think that's definitely something that we are seeing in Myanmar, but could definitely be improved on. Right.、Uh, you seem to know information about COVID that I feel most people may not have access to, because. When we look at the news,、uh, or when I look at the news, it's often said to me that the vaccine will be coming out in three months. You know, they are trying to lower the panic that people are feeling, and、mm-hmm. and also giving a certain kind of time frame. And、mm-hmm. you get a sense that they're pushing for this to end as soon as possible. But、mm-hmm. we didn't think, or I didn't think, that it would last a year or two. That was what surprised me the most when you mentioned it. So I would like to know what you think about this,、uh, particularly how we should go about our days. What should the local citizen do? What's their、right. part in this? And also, if the worst case scenario you do get COVID, what should you do? What what can you do to maybe increase、right. immunity or, yeah. Right. Okay. So, I mean, there are ministry guidelines and protocols around this, as well as WHO guidelines. I would say first thing is to inform yourself of what these guidelines and protocols are. And、uh, I know that sometimes if you're not working in healthcare, there's a lot of jargon. There's a barrier to accessing this information. But I would recommend going on the Myanmar Ministry of Health website. There is a plethora of information on there, and so I think one is taking individual responsibility to keep yourself informed and updated. Is definitely one thing I would say. What you're asking and how I'm going to answer it is in two ways. One is understand the timeline a little bit so that we are aware of how we, you know, what we.、Uh, Are mentally and emotionally and physically prepared.、And、the second is what you can do individually or as a family at home, right? So we're not talking at the health system level. In terms of timeline, you have a variety of people saying we're going to have a vaccine really soon. Russia says they have a vaccine. That I personally am not very、uh, confident in. But let's say for every drug to be approved. By any sort of FDA, Food and Drug Administration, needs to go through four clinical trial phases. Oftentimes, those clinical trials take up to two to three years, if not longer, because they need to test for efficacy. Does it actually work? They need to test for safety. Okay, it works, but how much should I prescribe? For example, we all take Panadol. Are we going to take a 500 milligram or a different dosage? So the dosage is also really important for safety. 
Uh, and then they need to actually make sure that there are no side effects or if there are side effects, what are the side effects? So it takes a very, very long time for a drug or a vaccine to actually come online. Um, that being said, there are many trials and many researchers globally are collaborating, which is very exciting to speed up this process. And a lot of governments are recognizing, okay, usually, you know, they have step one, step two, step three, but now they're saying, can we do this simultaneously? So they are trying to speed up the process. But the earliest we're going to see a vaccine that really works, that will be approved for usage could be 2021, maybe late 2021 or early 2022. And after that, what people are forgetting is that there needs to be a mass manufacturing of these vaccines. And after manufacturing of these vaccines, they need to be logistically distributed globally. So the question of which country gets how many vaccines is another step that we haven't, no one has even thought of. But of course, if you are a rich country like the United States, you have already funded these pharmaceutical companies to say, all right, we're going to fund you to develop a COVID vaccine. But if in the case down the road that you come up with a vaccine, we are going to purchase, let's say, a portion of those vaccines. So they have already their foot in the door. Countries like Myanmar, who are developing and many other low income and middle income countries are going to be at the end of the waiting list. So that's why I don't mean to burst anyone's bubble, but <laughs> Getting a vaccine into Myanmar uh, is going to take a while, even after a vaccine is found. But that being said, I think that we are entering a challenge of our times. I mean, diseases have not been new in our human civilization. We've experienced this throughout our entire human civilization. And if anything, it makes us more resilient, right? For instance, look at the way that our housings are built now, right? We think, oh, this is just how the way it, it has always been. No, not really. <laughs> you know, the way that our houses are being built is based on um, making sure there's enough air, enough light, there's ventilation. That is because we have had diseases and outbreaks in the past. Uh, looking forward, the good news is I really think that there's a lot that we can do by changing the way we operate and we work. So that's more like at the system level. But individually, what you can do is a lot of things is practice personal hygiene. Make sure that you're washing hands consistently. Make sure that you're wearing a mask every time you go out. Making sure that you are maintaining social distancing. Um, there's many things. And of course, you know, there's another aspect to it. If you can stay home, please stay home and do work from home. But if you are working in a central service, then maybe you do not have the privilege to do that. So it's really making sure that you are aware of what are the government um, guidelines out there and making sure you follow it if you can. Another thing you could do, I think that I haven't heard a lot about, is taking care of your own personal well-being. That it means both physical and mental. So physically, please work out if you haven't been working out. <laughs> uh, if you have the internet, you can go on YouTube or you can go on online exercise courses and you could do exercises at home in the comfort of your home without going out. And if you haven't been doing that, please do that. And your diet is another big thing that we don't talk about. Burmese food is great, but it's very oily. <laughs> so maybe now is a good time while you're stuck at home to learn new recipes healthy options to your favorite type of food is another thing you could try to do. Another thing is your mental well-being and they're interconnected, you know, your physical and your mental well-being. And again, there's a plethora of online resources you could tap into. 
For example, there's BetterHelp. Um, there's another one called Talk Therapy or something like that. That you can talk to a therapist or a counselor online. I know there's a stigma around mental health and talking to counselors, but I think it's needed. And I think our generation needs to be the generation that says it is important to us, and we are not going to. Stigmatizes that this is normal. In fact, we are all going through a global pandemic. Okay, I would be surprised if people are not struggling already with their own mental health. I mean, there are days when the pandemic first hit that I wake up and I say, "Why am I even like awake? Should I just go back to sleep because there's nothing else to do to look forward to in the day?" So, mental health is something that is a hidden thing, especially right now. We're you know more concerned about saving lives. But for the long term, if we do not address the mental health of our generation, we will have a generation of traumatized people in 20 years, and those are the effects that are more long term and more subtle. But if you are a policymaker, you would be thinking about these things and trying to mitigate those risks. You say、yeah. long term and subtle, but the effects of a lockdown on a society、oh, yeah. mm-hmm. has definitely shown effect in some places. You just need to look at the suicide rate,、uh, yeah, and just see that as a trend, and you'll see that there was a huge spike during the lockdown, yeah, which is a, a very drastic change in mental health, I would say. Exactly. So it is extremely、yeah. important, and I think that most people who see going to the therapist as a bad thing. Shouldn't do、mm-hmm. that. I think maintaining your mental health is almost as important as maintaining your physical health. Like you said,、mm-hmm. they're both interconnected, and and one will affect the other. Definitely. I mean, spot on. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not a long-term thing, right? It's happening now,、mm-hmm. and it's very important. And if we don't pay attention to it, you know, we're going to see a lot more self-harm, and that would be terrible to see. And when it comes to specifically getting therapy, there's a lot、mm. of options now. I've、mm-hmm. tried a trial of an online therapy session, and I have to admit this lockdown has weighed heavily on me. It was very difficult, and so when I finally decided to take that step and actually get some help, it、mm-hmm. really changed how I felt. It was a very positive experience because I was able to lower my walls、mm-hmm. and be given insight that others have not been able to give me. A third-person perspective usually、mm-hmm. does that,、mm-hmm. and I feel. Like that is such a cool, innovative way to address the issue. I mean, who would have thought that therapy sessions could happen online 20 years、yep. ago? So、yeah. when it comes to these kinds of innovations in healthcare, do you feel like Myanmar is able to take that step onto the train and actually benefit from the recent developments? Yeah, I think. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm very、uh, proud and happy for you that you went and seeked、uh, online help. Like it, it takes a lot. I understand, like especially in a country like Namibia, right? So I'm really, really proud of you for doing that. Okay, so going to innovations in healthcare, we are entering globally, right? Even before COVID, the fourth industrial revolution with technology,、right. AI, big data, all of that stuff. And if anything, I think COVID has demonstrated that we need technology even more. And it has accelerated a lot of advancements in technology, especially in the health tech sphere. So, what you were saying before about online counseling sessions, why not have online counseling sessions not just for mental health but also for physical health? Of course, there's some caveat there on certain types of physical health that you could actually do online counseling for.、Uh, some of them will still require face-to-face of going into health facility, but telemedicine as a field is definitely on the cusp of growth. If not already growing in the region, and thankfully, I would say Myanmar 
because of our telecommunications industry and our ICT industry, almost everyone has a cell phone now. The mobile rate is extremely high in our country as opposed to, let's say, 10 years ago. So I think that mobile connectivity gives us an opportunity to make use of more mobile technology solutions. It can be anything from telemedicine where you are talking to a doctor on your Facebook Messenger. And there are a lot of startups actually in uh, homegrown from Numavi looking at telemedicine already. Uh, you could look at, for instance, contact tracing apps, uh, which Singapore is uh, also pushing for and the same in South Korea as well, where you develop a mobile application so that it helps policymakers better understand and notify people, let's say. So for instance, uh, I think a few days ago, there was a positive case in Macro, right? Right. And then uh, my dad goes, oh my gosh, I think I went there literally a few days before. <laughs> so if we had a contact tracing app, then he would have been notified through this app instantaneously using big data and, and all of these analyses. If there was a positive case at this place he visited, they would have notified him. And so those are things that I still have not seen, but could be developed and should be developed in the very near future I'm using mobile technology. And of course, there are other more advanced uh, procedures like uh, using AI technology for imaging, for instance. But that I think it's going to take a little bit more time to develop. But there are things that we could do right away. Oh, and oh, I think yeah. we should promote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're thinking of something, right? I'm thinking about AI surgery. I'm thinking about replacing doctors. <laughs> I'm thinking about like the, depending on how you see it, right? The utopian or dystopian processes that may exist in the future. But we don't mm -hmm. need to go into that. Let's, let's just leave that for, for later generations <laughs> to decide. <laughs> to grapple with. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I feel like you're right, though, when it comes to the technology that already exists. I mean, it's not just iPhones, but a lot of people have these fitness trackers, right? Mm -hmm. That basically capture biometrics, your personal yeah. biometrics. And, and so they essentially will have a better sense of your health than you. If they were to somehow install a temperature checker mm -hmm. and also link it up so that the local public health sector is aware of your information too, that would greatly increase the real-time information exchange and help right. Right. And help first responders to better get to where they need to go. And the only issue I see with that is obviously what a lot yeah. of people would be concerned with, which is privacy, which is yes. uh, how secure that technology will be. Correct. So that, that becomes a problem for the people who understand that technology. I, I don't know how familiar you are with, mm -hmm. uh, with the concerns of privacy. Is this something that you also yeah. have to deal with in your line of work? Do people raise yeah. this concern? Definitely. I mean, it's a trade off. Everything as in life is a trade-off. Mm. I mean, what I would say is a blanket statement is it really depends on the culture of, of every country. So in Singapore and in South Korea, big government is a very normal thing. So surveillance, a massive surveillance on, on the population, where they're going, when they're going, who they're meeting with, the government all has, has all this data from years beforehand. But it's the trust. We call it a social capital, right? It's the trust that people place in their governance is another big factor about people's view of privacy. Obviously, now because of COVID, and especially in these countries, we're now seeing bigger governments and bigger surveillance. And I think we will continue to see that. But that being said, it goes back to the foundation of trust, trust of the government and the people. So what you were insinuating before is the government track personal devices, right? Mm -hmm. There are laws actually that protect that. <laughs> so we cannot do that. But 
It's the trust that the government places in you that you have your personal device, so you know your temperature, you know your heart rate, all of that. That if you are showing any symptoms of COVID, you will then go to a health professional and seek services, and that is the trust that the government places in you. In return, you places your trust in the government that when you go to the health facility, there will be services that are there to take care of you. So it's a two-way thing, and obviously privacy is a huge issue.、Um, in fact, in Singapore, they、uh, recently passed a law called the PDPA Act, which goes into protection of personal data, and it's going to be even yeah, it's going to be even more important. And I think Myanmar needs to develop a similar legislation that protects personal data. It seems like okay, maybe we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But now that we're seeing with technological advancements and COVID is going to make this even more important, this is something that lawmakers in Myanmar should be looking into very, very shortly. I mean, similar to do with cybersecurity and all of that stuff. There's always a pros and cons to every solution. Technology can be used to support healthcare. But at the same time, you need to be taking into considerations about personal data and privacy. You know, as one of my professors said before, there is no perfect policy or no perfect solution. But you have to know that if you take this route, if you do this, there will be consequences. And it's to know beforehand what those consequences can be and will be, so that you actually. Before you even do anything, you are coming up with different measures to mitigate those risks. So, yeah, it's always a trade-off. There's no one perfect solution. There's no one silver bullet. And technology definitely is one of those amazing things that we could use for many great things, but it could also be hacked, <laughs> and it could be used for other malicious purposes. And those are things that we need to be thinking about.、Um, but you know, in Myanmar, there's Pandia. There's a lot of these local technology CSOs that are really sort of、um, looking into this. So I would be very excited to see,、um, you know, what、uh, what they say about this. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. It's been very informative and very unique. This podcast has been quite a journey for me because I've never、mm-hmm. had this chance to talk to the alumni, all, all the people ahead of me. I never went and actively sought for advice or information. Now I'm doing it for people who will listen, but I'm doing it also for myself. This has been really good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Theo, for making time and for inviting me. And I hope that we can have more conversations like this. Yes,、um, of course. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to working with Chinde Network even more in the future. Ma Crystal Kine, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed the show, please give us a thumbs up, leave a comment below, or send a message to Chinde Network at gmail dot com. I'm Siwa, and you're listening to the Chinde Network podcast. <laughs>